Well, since Tim Pell took over the, the like the live streaming and everything, and doing the the uh, the title screens that accompany each of the live stream teachings, he said you need to come up with a creative title for your lessons, and uh, which is no problem for me. But in fact, he kind of unleashed a monster because. Coming up with a title is not a, a difficult thing. It's narrowing it down to one title that's tough. So I've got several titles for this, for this, uh, this chapter. The f- number one title is A Wolf's Best Friend. We see some wolves return in this chapter, and they return because of one thing. It's the best friend a wolf could ever have. And maybe you can take some guesses to what that thing is, but we'll get to it a little bit later. But if you've read this book of Nehemiah the right way, when you get to chapter 13, it should feel like a slap in the face. It's like, boom, this is not what I was expecting. As everything progresses through the chapter and builds this amazing, wonderful climax that we studied last time, where the two choirs are marching around the walls and dedicating the walls, the doors, the people. It's just a wonderful, wonderful way to end the book, but it doesn't end there. There's always this chapter 13. It's like, what? How did that happen? Or here we go again. You know, you read over and over uh, in, the, in the scriptures about how the Jewish people are blessed by God. They're brought to this pinnacle, and then they kind of crash and burn. And God has to sweep up the pieces and put them back together. And up here they are again, and then they crash and burn. And then we sit back smugly and think, oh, those Jews, they just can never get it right, can they? But Paul says these things are written for our admonition, us, because we do the same thing. And this thing that is the, a wolf's best friend is also your worst enemy. And it's something you need to get out of your life. And if you don't actively pursue getting rid of it, it will always come back. It's kind of like dust in your house. You can dust your house, there's not a speck left, right? You may think, good, I've dusted so well, I'll never have to dust my house again. Oh, yeah, you will. Because this thing will keep just coming back and accumulating. It's natural. It's what happens. So you must constantly be on top of it and pursuing it and getting rid of it. Spiritual entropy is another name, another title for this chapter we could use. Because entropy, if you ever took physics in school, you know that entropy is this, this law of the universe where everything tends to wind down. This winds down. If you don't take care of it and put energy into it, it'll just kind of down into nothing. And physicists also tell us there's only one thing in the universe that opposes entropy, and that's life. Life cycles up. But then where does life come from? It comes from God. The Bible has a, a, a term for entropy. It's called the curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, God put a curse on the earth. Not on them, but on the earth. And so entropy kicked in. And things tend to wind down. That's why you have to keep weeding the garden. You have to keep sowing seed. You have to keep doing the things you have to do. Because if you don't, it all just runs down into a, just a mess. So uh, there's one thing that opposes entropy, and that's life itself. And scientists can't explain it. Oh, they try, but they do a lousy job of explaining life. Or a preview of Messiah's return. Uh, because Nehemiah, in many ways, is a picture of Yeshua himself, as we're going to see, especially 
in this chapter. So, let's uh, get right into it. It's important as we approach chapter 13 to do a little review. So, what's gone on in Nehemiah? What are the things that have happened? We need to kind of review this so we can really appreciate what's happening in this chapter. In chapters 1 through 3, Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem from Babylon, and he assesses the work that needs to be done. Israel's been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, just as God prophesied they would be if they didn't follow his commandments. So, the 70 years are up. And then Cyrus, King Cyrus, sends an edict that the Jews may go back to Jerusalem, tells them to rebuild the temple, restore the streets, the walls, the gates of the city, completely restore the city. And so Nehemiah comes back. Ezra comes first, then Nehemiah. In in chapters 4 through 7, the work is completed amid great opposition. The people who lived around Jerusalem... Uh, the, the foreign nations, the Gentiles, opposed the work of restoration every inch of the way. One place says they had to work with, a, you, you know, carrying bricks and stones with one hand and holding the sword with the other because they're always fighting off enemies as they did this work of restoration. But they succeeded. They got it done. In chapters 8 and 9, the people hear the Torah. They celebrate Sukkot for the first time. They repent of their sins. And I mean, things are going great. Not only are the walls and the gates all restored, but the people are restored. In chapter 10, this is a very important chapter, they make a covenant with God. They kind of take the Torah and they sum it up into five, four, five, six major points, and they make a covenant that they're going to keep the Torah. They're going to support the temple. They're going to do things God's way. Leaders are appointed, and then the walls are dedicated, as we read last week. And then Nehemiah goes on a trip. He goes back to Babylon. And uh, researchers and commentators try to figure out how long he was gone. Our best guess is maybe 10 or 12 years. It would take several months to make the trip one way to Babylon or from Babylon to Jerusalem. It was not an easy journey. So he went back because he was a subject of the king. He was his cupbearer and advisor. And he was gone for quite a while. And then they say that when he came back to Jerusalem, he was uh, an old man. He's about my age, you know, mid-40s. And so I, I hear a laugh back there. But we don't know exactly how long he was gone, but he was gone for a spell. And during that time he was gone, things began to spiral down. Spiritual entropy kicked in, and things just went to pot. Now, during this time, during this time that Nehemiah was gone, God sent the prophet Malachi. So we're going to be looking at Malachi some this morning. Amazing book. But the context for Malachi is this period of time in which Nehemiah was absent from Jerusalem. Malachi comes to the word malach, which means angel or messenger, same word. Malachi, malachi, or, or Malachi means my messenger. So God sent, he says, I'm sending my messenger to tell you to get things right, to bring correction, restoration. And this gap here between Nehemiah leaving to go to Babylon and then coming back to Israel is kind of like the period of time we're living in right now. 
Yeshua was here. He brought restoration. He established a, a spiritual kingdom, and then he left. But he's coming back. What's he going to find when he returns? What's he going to find? And then we come to chapter 13, which I call, are you kidding me? <laughs> After all the work that was done, you were at the pinnacle, you, everything was just perfect, and you just let it all just disintegrate. Really? That's what you did? And so in chapter 13, it's like Nehemiah has to do it all over again. But here's the thing that's interesting. The walls were still in good condition. The gates were still in good condition. The temple was still in good condition. It was not a failure of the walls and the gates. It was the failure of the people. Because walls and gates can't protect you from this thing that's wired into us that if we don't fight against it, will destroy us. Walls and gates are good against the external enemies, but it doesn't protect us from the one that's always in here. And so Nehemiah deals with this, this inner enemy and restores things back to where they're supposed to be. So, speaking of enemies, there's one other bit of review we have to do. We've reviewed the chapters of Nehemiah up to this point. But we have to review who Nehemiah's enemies were. We haven't heard from them since chapter 6. They're completely absent in chapters 7 through 11, but they come back in this chapter. Let's just remember quickly who they were. Nehemiah's arch enemies. The two main ones were Sanballat and Tobiah, or Tovia. There's another one called Geshem the Arab, but he's, he played a minor role. Back in Nehemiah 2.10... Nehemiah presents the letters from the king in Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem, the temple, the wall, and everything. It says, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. Now remember, this is very important. Remember who Tobiah is. He's an Ammonite. That's important. The official heard about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So when that first order came back from the king to rebuild the city and restore it, they were very displeased. A few verses later in verse 19, Nehemiah calls the people to start building. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They accused us, in other words. So they mocked us, they despised us, they accused us of being rebels by actually obeying the king and doing God's will. And then in chapter 4, the building begins. They start actually doing the work and they can see the progress taking place as the walls are repaired. And it says, now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and mocked the Jews. Then verse 3, now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, even when they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. In other words, they're furious as for building the wall, yet mocking the weakness of the wall. So these these are bad guys. And all through those first six chapters, they are just nothing but a pain in Nehemiah's side. 
doing everything they can to interrupt the work, delay the work, stop the work, mock the work. And they were enemies, constant enemies. But after chapter 6, when the work is done, you don't hear anything from them until now. Because the moment Nehemiah leaves town, Sanballat and Tobiah, they're right back up to their old games, but more successful than before. So, let's pick it up, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the Torah of Moses, the book of Moses, and the hearing of the people. And then it was found written that no Ammonite, now what was uh, Tobiah? He was an Ammonite. Or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. You can read all about this back in Deuteronomy 23 and also in the book of Numbers. Yet our God turned the curse into blessing. When Balaam cursed, God turned it into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the Torah, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. And you can add the word almost. Almost. Now, why did Israel accept Ammonites and Moabites? They had already, back in chapter 9, got rid of the foreign wives and foreign people who would ensconce themselves in Israel's leadership and, and families. But now it's Ammonites and Moabites. Why have they tolerated these two? If you remember your stories from the Torah, back in Genesis, when Lot and his family settled in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God came to bring destruction on those cities, he sent his angel ahead to rescue Lot and his family. So Lot and his wife, his two daughters, their two husbands did not come. They stayed in Sodom. But they started on their way out. The angel said, do not look back. And of course, Lot's wife looked back, turned to pillar of salt. She didn't make it. And the angel says, go to this city over here. And Lot whined. He says, oh, that's too far away. Can we just go in the mountain up here? Can we go here instead? And they went to this other town and then wound up in a cave on a mountain. So there's Lot his two wicked daughters, and they figure the world's coming to an end. They'll never have children. And I tell you, this beats anything in any soap opera or anything, but this is the Bible. One night, they get their father drunk, and his one daughter sleeps with him, becomes pregnant. She becomes the mother of Moab, which means from Av, from father. And then the other daughter gets dad drunk, sleeps with him, and she has a son named Ammon, who became the father of the Ammonites. So the Moabites and the Ammonites were Israel's cousins. They were born from Abraham's nephew. So they probably thought, well, they're okay. You know, we are related after all. But God says that's not okay. Not because of what the daughters did, not because of how Moab and Ammon came into, into being, but because of what they did to Israel years later. And when Israel comes out of Egypt, Egyptian bondage, you'd think they could count on their cousins to help them. But the one cousin hired Balaam to curse the people, and the other cousin refused to provide food and water to them and did not allow them to cross their land. They treated Israel very wickedly. So God says, they're not allowed to intermarry into my people. They're not allowed to intermarry. They can convert, but they can't intermarry. They have to marry a Gentile convert. 
They can't intermarry with the Jewish people, the children of Abraham. So, that's the backstory there. And let's continue as we read. Verse 4. Now, before this, Eliashiv, the high priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God. He is the high priest. He's appointed to oversee the chambers, all the rooms of the temple. Look what he did. Who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah. And remember, Tobiah is what? He's an Ammonite. He's one of the bad guys. He prepares for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions of the priest. Remember back when Tobiah said, oh, a fox would jump on the wall and tear it down. Now the fox is living inside the temple itself. He's living there. The wolf is in the temple. And he got there because the high priest invited him to come live there. He clears out one of the rooms that's devoted to housing the tithes and the gifts of the temple to support the priest and to serve the temple and the sacrifices. Clears that all out to buy here, have a room. You can live right here, right here in God's house. This Eliashiv was probably a nice guy, but he was a fool. I've met some nice people who did wickedness. They had all kinds of good tensions. In fact, a lot of times the biggest fools and the ones who are the biggest practitioners of wickedness are those with the softest hearts. You see, not only do we have to repair the walls of the city, we must be the wall to the city. And that's where the failure was. They built up these beautiful walls and gates. They were great. But the the people themselves, the leaders, were not a wall. So so Tobiah did not have to break down a, a gate. He didn't have to blow up a wall. All he had to do was prey upon a weak and soft-hearted man. And not only has he come into the city, he's living in the temple. Let me show you another example of Eliashiv's wickedness. Skip over to the end of the book, verse 28. And says, one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashiv. In other words, Eliashiv, he was the father of Jehoiada. And Eliashiv, the high priest, was a son of Jehoiada. And Jehoiada had a son who became the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So not only does Eliashiv make a room for Tobiah in the temple, he lets his grandson... Mary, Sanballat's daughter. Probably just thinking, well, I just treat them nicely. If I'm just friends with them, it'll all be okay. It wasn't okay. Rabbis, I forget which rabbi said it, says when you're kind to the, what is the word, the wicked? When you're kind to the wicked, you will be wicked to the kind. When you show this kind of a mercy to someone who's a wolf, The wolf is going to eat the one who shows the mercy. You just don't do that. We have to be a wall. We need to have 
discretion and discernment and wisdom because you have to be strong. You can't make a wall out of whipped cream. And some believers are just whipped cream. They say, love, 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 love all the time. But the things Eliashev did because of his affection and his niceness and his weakness actually made an, an enemy of God and of God's people and of Nehemiah. Niceness gone astray is a very dangerous thing. And niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. We need to know when to be the lion and when to be the lamb. And in some instances, we see Yeshua as the lamb of God. Oh, the little lamb, so sweet, so gentle, so kind. And he was. But oh boy, there are times he rises up to be a lion. Twice he drove the money changers out of the temple with a whip, threw the tables over. He was angry. The only time it ever specifically states Yeshua was angry, uses that word, is in Mark, I think it's chapter 3, around verse 5. Yeshua goes into the tabernacle. I'm not, I'm sorry, the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. And everybody knows that Yeshua can heal this man, but it's the Sabbath. And the Pharisees or Sadducees are just watching, just watching to see, is he going to heal this guy or not? Because if he does, he's violating the Sabbath. And it says Yeshua was angry at them. He was angry. These were supposed to be the teachers of the Torah. We're going to try to twist the Torah into putting the word made flesh to death. Because the moment he healed this man, it says these Pharisees, Sadducees left, began to plot how to kill him. Boy, no wonder that he was angry. Yeshua is capable of anger. The first time he came, he came as a lamb, do with me what you want. You want to accept me as king? Great. You want to crucify me as a criminal? That's your choice. I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll submit to whatever you choose for me. But when he returns, it says the lion of the tribe of Judah, the world will submit to him. Okay? We need to have both of these natures within us. If we want to be like Messiah, we need to be a lion when we need to be a lion. We need to be a lamb when we need to be a lion. God help us if we get those two confused because it's so easy to do. I can think of so many times I was a lion when I should have been a lamb and a lamb when I should have been a lion. We need to be clear-headed. We need to know God's word. We need to go know him. We have to have courage to be the what we need to be. To be a lamb and, and submit to insult. Submit to the harm people do to us and not complain. Just absorb it. But then to stand up with courage and be a lion if there's a thousand arrayed against us, encourage us to do what's wrong. We become a lion. We become the wall. So you know how to, need to know when to be the gate and open. You need to know when to be the wall. Say, nope. You shall not pass. So anyways, how did all this happen? Well, Nehemiah tells us. Um, going back to verse 5, which he just read. He's talking about Tobiah doing this. Verse 6, Nehemiah says, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. 
And after some time, we think maybe 12 years, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And when I understood the evil that Eliashiv had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out onto the curb. That's my reading. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So Yeshua is cleansing the temple and throwing the money changers out. Wasn't the first time somebody had done something similar. Nehemiah was the first. He went in there. He saw what was going on. There was no confusion in his mind about what was right and wrong. And he took action. And he took to buy his stuff and just, this old man just and threw it out. Just threw it out of the temple. Just threw it out, let it break and crash and get scarred up. Dumped it all. And then he had everything brought back in that was supposed to be there originally. Sometimes we need to do that in our own life because we're temples after all. Yeshua's going to do it when he returns. Maybe we should have a good yard sale before he gets here. Get the things out that don't belong. It wasn't that the things Tobiah owned were wicked. They just did not belong in God's house. God's house is meant for something else. So here's an outline of the things Nehemiah does in this chapter. We just read about how he cleanses the temple. Because remember that covenant back in chapter 10? Part of that covenant was to maintain the temple and all the things that were needed for the temple worship. That had fallen to pieces. Nehemiah restores it. The second thing Nehemiah did was to restore the tithe. Look at verses 10 to 14. Um, We'll just read a few of the, well, we'll read 10 through 12. He says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. The Levites just left. They couldn't put fire on the altar. There's no wood. They couldn't put sacrifices. There's no sacrifices. They couldn't do the incense offering. There's no incense. Nobody was maintaining the, the, the things they needed to do the work. So it had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So let's just go home. There's nothing to do here. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Because this leader took courageous action, restored things where they need to belong. The people were like, yes, things are going back to normal, and they bring the tithes in. But they didn't want to bring tithes in if Tobiah is just going to sit on them and eat them and sell them and do with them what he wants. And this restoring the tithe is part of the covenant of chapter 10, which the people broke. Another part of the covenant in chapter 10 was to keep the Sabbath. And when you go down to verse 15, Nehemiah begins to address this. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day day when they sold food. 
I want you to think about something here. They're treading the wine presses. They're bringing in wine and grapes and figs, all kinds of loads. Where do all these things come from? From God's blessing. God had blessed him with all of this stuff. And God said, take one day out of seven. Take the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Don't do any work. Make it holy. Think about me. Come to me. Spend time with me. Is that, we don't have time for you. We're too busy enjoying the gifts you've given us. I remember when I was a little kid, I was uh, not very socially astute. (laughs) The other little kids in the neighborhood. (laughs) Actually, he wasn't socially astute. Anyway, see, he said, Grant, I'm having a birthday party on such and such a day. And if you can't come, just send a present. That's what he said. Just send a present. And that's kind of how we are with God. God, it's okay we don't spend any time together if we do that. But please bless me. Please give me stuff. So as you read through these verses, you see how they violated the Sabbath day. Skip skip on down to verse 19. It says, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath... Because the Sabbath begins at nighttime, right? At sundown. I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. So even though he prevented the people from doing commercial business on the Sabbath, he didn't want the people out there with their wares tempting the people. Get out of here. Come back after the Sabbath's over. I don't even want you around tempting my people to do commerce on the Sabbath. And again, this was part of the covenant of chapter 10 that Nehemiah is restoring. And then you get down to verse... 23 to 29, with these intermarriages with Ammonites and Moabites, because part of the covenant in chapter 10 was to maintain family purity. And over the 12 years, that had fallen to pieces. So Nehemiah addresses that. In verse 23, he says, In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They couldn't even speak Hebrew. Then you go on to verse 25. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I mean, this Nehemiah, he was a lion. The only thing he didn't do was beat or, or bite them. But, uh, and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And... Uh, Going down to verse 30. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the last of four prayers that Nehemiah prays in this chapter. As every step he took, he's praying to God. Then he takes action, pulls out a few beards, throws some junk out on the curb. Then he prays to God. 
And he's doing these things, but always in touch with the Father. Am I doing things right? Am I doing what's in the heartbeat, in sync with your heartbeat? So he wasn't acting on his own. He was acting in obedience to God. And everything you see him doing here is a picture of what Messiah is going to do when he returns. The question is asked, when Yeshua returns, will he find faith on the earth? There are a few hints of people who are faithful during these 12 years Nehemiah was gone. But they don't get much attention. It's all the violators of the covenant, the ones who forgot their God, the ones who failed to be a wall, who failed to protect the city and the people inside, who invited the wolf to come live in the temple. These are the ones who get the attention. So the question is, when Messiah returns, will he find you faithful? If you're part of his bride, that means you're waiting for your bridegroom to come and take you to the marriage ceremony, to the wedding feast. You keep yourself pure because you're waiting for him to come back. Either to come back to take your life and, uh, through death and take you to himself or come back physically to take you to the, uh, the bridal chamber that way. Either way, you wind up the bridal chamber if you're watching, if you're watching. Now, of all the people in the Hebrew scriptures that Yeshua commands us to remember, he, re- he tells us to remember this one person. We don't even know the person's name. Who was it? Lot's wife. He didn't say, remember Abraham, remember Noah, remember Samuel, remember David. He said, remember Lot's wife. Because every single one of us could be one who's destined to escape the destructions coming. But because our hearts are back there, we lose so much of our inheritance. We lose our life. We lose the the reward, the glory God has for us because we didn't stay alert and watch. Remember Lot's wife. Those are sobering words. That's really something about all the people in the Old Testament scriptures for the Messiah to say, remember this one. Because if you don't, you might repeat her error. I don't want that to happen. I want you to be one of the five wise virgins who are prepared for my coming, watching for it, not five foolish ones who let their lamps burn out and they're not prepared to relight them, rekindle them. They're just not alert. We need to be alert every day, every single day. Is either today could be a day you die or a day Messiah returns. Are you prepared? Because you're going to experience one or the other of those events. Guaranteed. No escape. So what is the wolf's best friend? It's complacency. Complacency. Complacency is like dust. It'll just accumulate in your life unless you're constantly on the alert and the watch for it. And the moment you get complacent, that is the moment the wolf begins to live in the temple. That's the moment you begin to intermarry with the things God forbids. Complacency. In Hebrew, it's the word shanan, which is translated ease or just being at ease. Because when things are easy, when you're, you're blessed because of all the things God's done, you just begin to relax. Ah, 
Remember those times when you'd wake up early in the morning and you couldn't wait to get into the Word? When you look forward to times of prayer? And then you look up at the clock and realize, how did so much time pass? Seems like I just got started. And now you wake up early and look at the clock and think, eh, another hour won't hurt and you stay in bed. Or you do your prayers, but you know, okay, tick, 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 tick. I prayed for all the things on the list. All right, now I need to get going and do something, use something useful. Use something I need to do around the house. So that's how it happens. It didn't happen overnight. Just this gradual collection of complacency in your life. The dust collects. Because things have gotten easy. This is the place that really, I think, warns us. This is where the word, I think it's only used four times in the Bible, but Job 12.5. In the thought of one who is shanan, who is complacent, there is contempt for misfortune. Ah, nothing bad's going to happen. Everything is good. God's blessed me. I'm a believer. I'm in a, a great community. I'm doing my thing. It's all good. What can go wrong? But it is ready for those whose feet slip. In the thought of one who is complacent, there is contempt for misfortune. It's not going to happen to me. But it's ready for those whose feet slip. Complacency is slippery stuff. It's very slippery stuff. You know, complacency is like democracy. If you're not constantly protecting it, not constantly serving it and promoting it and teaching it and passing it on, it slips away. Your freedoms slip away, and the next thing you find, you wake up and you're in a socialist country. There are certain things that have been given to us, but they had to be earned. They had to be earned at great cost. And if you don't continue to put energy into them, entropy takes over, and they, they just dissolve down into nothing. Let's go to the book of Malachi. Malachi was the messenger during this time. So the words of Malachi really intersect in a powerful way with the events in Nehemiah. Because you wonder, how did things get so bad in 12 years? Well, read Malachi and it kind of gives you an account. This may be a little (laughs) heretical, but I call Malachi the book of dumb questions. Because in this book, people are asking dumb questions. They're really dumb. God doesn't ask dumb questions. These are questions the people are asking because they've come so dull, so dumb, so self-centered, so complacent that they start asking really dumb questions. I mean, look how the book starts out. Chapter 1, verse 1. At the oracle of the word of Adonai to Israel through Malachi, 
I have loved you, says Adonai. But you say, dumb question number one, how have you loved us? I don't see no love. You know, I, I need to get somebody with a real good uh, punk voice. I didn't do nothing. When I do wrong, what's your problem? You know how punk kids kind of talk like that? Imagine every one of these questions in that kind of a punk voice. How have you loved us? I mean, that's kind of how the attitude. And God's answer at first doesn't seem to address the question, but it's utterly brilliant. So they, they ask the question. You say, how have you loved us? Dumb question number one. And God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Adonai, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation, appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. That doesn't seem to be an answer. God's answers are so brilliant, so wise, so deep and intelligent, you've got to really stop and study on it to realize how his answer addresses the question. This is what he's saying. When Jacob and Esau were in Rebekah's womb, they were wrestling. They were already fighting before they were even born. They're two different natures that are always in conflict. Yeah, he loved the one nature, and I hated the other one. I loved Jacob, I hated Esau, and everything he stood for. When they were born, they continued to fight. Jacob was a man who dwelt in tents. He studied, he spent time with his father Isaac, his grandfather Abraham. He was just always in the word, learning the ways of God. Esau, he's a hairy man. He's out in the field. He likes to shoot and hunt and kill and eat. And he was a very worldly person, passion, physical passions to the max, where Jacob, his passions were spiritual. And God's saying, I've protected you. I have protected you from Esau. I have protected you from his descendants. I have protected from his from his heart of destruction towards you. But because you don't see what I'm doing, you don't think I love you. It's like when your kid starts to get a little bit smart mouth, starts complaining about things at home. He doesn't see all the work you do at home. He doesn't see the sleep you lose because you take care of him and you took care of him when he was a child. They don't see the financial sacrifices you make for his good. They just remember the toy you didn't let them buy. They just remember the, 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 the expensive tennis shoes you would not buy for him. How you love me. You know, it's the same thing. Blindness to God's daily provision and protection. And complacency blinds us to God's daily protection and protection. They just don't see God's daily care. Then they lose their gratitude for God. Dumb question number two. Go on down to uh, verse six. God says, a son honors his father. And a servant honors his master. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where's my respect, says Adonai of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? I don't know what you're talking about. Imagine that being said in a punk voice, right? I could have done the punk voice about Probably about 50 years ago, (laughs) 
when I was uh, in my teens, but not so much anymore. So how have we despised your name? And he says, because there's no fear of God. All right, think of the son and his father. And the son refers to his father. Yeah, my old man, he does this. My old man does that. And when this young man is with his friends and then dad shows up, the young man just kind of snickers and rolls his eyes. Yeah, well, whatever. His dad's not cool. He doesn't like good music like we do. Dad's old. And just the attitudes, just the attitudes by themselves without even saying anything because they show no respect for their father. You know, the Torah commands us that when a gray-haired person comes into the room, younger people should stand. That's all they have to do. They don't have to say anything. Just stand. It's respect. That's a really good commandment. Can you imagine if we all taught our children, when you see someone with gray hair, if it's dyed, don't bother standing up. But if they're sporting their gray hair and they're growing old gracefully, you stand up because you show respect for the old. Towards the young, you have to (laughs) be careful. But you respect the old because they've walked this earth a lot longer than you have. They've gone through a lot more than you have, and they've suffered a lot more than you have. They've gathered a whole lot more wisdom than you have. You stand up in front of them. They've survived. We just taught our kids to stand up. Can you imagine the respect they would give their their parents, the honor they'd give them? So God says, there's no fear of me. There's no respect of me. You don't stand in awe of me anymore. You treat me with casualness. You're complacent. And then stupid question number three comes right on stupid question number two's heels. Verse seven, you are presenting polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? How have we polluted you? And that you say the table of Adonai is to be polluted, despised. So dumb question number three. His answer is this. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? In other words, you give me things that you don't even want yourselves. You give me things that you don't want. You give me things that really don't cost you anything. There's really no sacrifice there. And so your, your, your act of sacrifice, your pretend sacrifices are actually polluting my altar. They're polluting me. You're defiling who I am. And the reason, and, but you think, how can I defile God? This is how you do it. By presenting to the world a God who is not to be feared. Presenting to the world a God who does not require our best, who does not require excellence. Presenting to the world a God who just doesn't give a rip about how you live. That's polluting him because you're polluting his testimony. 
I'm reading this amazing book slowly called The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. This great British teacher, Bible scholar, wonderful book. And one of the main, th- he's taking the gospel, he's, he's stripping away of everything we think we know about it and presenting it to us in fresh eyes. And it's very revolutionary when you really begin to look at what Yeshua accomplished for us, why he did it, how he did it, because we all think we understand it. I guarantee you, you don't. I, I encourage you to read this book. And he says one of the main things, the primary thing Yeshua wanted to do was to restore God's image in each one of us. In other words, destroy the works of the, the enemy, destroy all the damage the enemy's done. But the epitome of that is for us to have God's image restored in us. But we tend to present an image of God, a God who's weak, who doesn't care, who's just slipshod and too easily pleased. And N.T. Wright has this wonderful analogy. He says, we're all to be slanted mirrors. It's like if there's a wall here and there's someone sitting on this side, but you folks can't see that person. There's light over here, but you all are over in darkness. Each one of us is like a person who's here on the outside of the wall. And we are a mirror. And if we tilt our mirror just right, the light of God, the light of truth hits us and we reflect it to a dark world. But we have to be clean. We have to be in the right place. We have to be in the right position where we're always seeing him, but we're tilted towards the world so they can see him through us. You see God's image through me. Each of us is to be that slanted mirror. Each of us to present the image of God to the world around us. Adam was made the image of God. That image was marred through sin. Through Yeshua, that image is to be restored. But it takes our effort as well. It takes our effort and our energy. So moving on, we have a few more dumb questions. The next one is over in chapter 2. Verse 13 to 14, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of Adonai with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the mincha. It says offering in most translations, but it's a specific kind of offering. A mincha offering is a grain offering, but it also means thanksgiving. It's to be a thanksgiving offering. A thanksgiving offering is to be offered in joy. These people are moaning and groaning while they do it. Because he no longer regards the thanksgiving offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, why? Why won't you accept my offering? I translate that as why won't you accept me? Because whenever you brought an offering, it was a picture of you giving yourself to God. It was a picture of you going on the altar, giving yourself completely up to him. So when a person asks, why won't God accept my offering? What you're really asking is, why won't God accept me? And his answer is brilliant. He says, because Adonai has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, God says, I'm treating you the way you treat your wife. 
You don't accept the things she does for you. You are always criticizing what she does and how she does it. I'm treating you the same way. You start treating your bride the way you should, and I will treat my bride the way I should. But your relationship with your wife is a perfect representation of my relationship with you. Always is. So guys, when you look in the mirror of your wife and you don't like what you see, it's your image she's reflecting. Fix it. And when you change you, you'll be amazed at how much your wife has improved. If men and husbands could only begin to read their wives and realize this is a mirror, she's reflecting to me what my relationship to God is like. Things can really improve. Men, your wife is the greatest gift God has given you in your adult years. The greatest gift. But we don't like what we see. We don't realize it's us we're looking at. And we go on to dumb question number five. Verse 17. You have wearied Adonai. Is that something? God gets tired. Even God gets fed up. You have wearied Adonai with your words. Yet you say, oh, we wearied him. <laughs> What's the big deal? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Adonai. And he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? In other words, you don't think there's any justice in the world. You see the wicked going on their merry way. They seem to be blessed. They seem to be taken care of. And so you start to think, oh, I be righteous. The wicked are as blessed as I am. All these rotten people I know have more money than me. They can drive nicer cars than I do and live in bigger houses. Why, why, why am I suffering trying to be righteous when the wicked are being blessed so much? You ever ask yourself that question? God says that kind of, that kind of talk makes me tired. Because he is a God of justice. He's saying, wait till the end of the story. Because you're building up for yourself treasure in the kingdom, treasure in heaven that can never be taken away. It's eternal. And all the treasure they're building up, that's all the pleasure you're going to have. And one day, it's gone. Come on, look at things the way they are. Look at things the way they truly are. And then number six, chapter three, verse seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Adonai of hosts. But you say, why should we repent? Yours may say, how shall we repent? But the, uh, the Hebrew there is uh, b'mei nushav. And b'mei can mean how or, or why. Why should we repent? What do we have to repent of? What did we do wrong? And he says, because you've robbed God. What? I never robbed God. How did we rob God? That's dumb question number eight. Will a man rob God and yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? He says, in tithes and offerings. By taking what isn't yours. Here's, notice something. I, we need to quit thinking of tithing as giving something back to God. Let me give you a new image of what tithing is. Someone hires you and says, 
I have a task I would like you to perform, and if you do it, I will pay you $900. You think, okay, I can do that. That's a good wage. Absolutely. Where do I sign up? So you start the task, you do the task, you do a great job at it, and then the person who hires you say, wonderful, thank you very much. Would you do me a favor? Just go in my office. I need to leave, but in my office, just go in there, and on the desk, you'll find your money. And you go in, you see 10 $100 bills laying on the desk, 10 of them. Now, you agreed to work for nine, but you see 10. The question is, you take your nine and the extra one? If you do, God calls that theft. Oh, it's there, it's available. You can take it if you want, but it's still stealing. But if you just take the $900 bills, it's not theft. Because you see, everything you have belongs to God. He says, but I'll let you have 90% of what belongs to me. But when you take the extra 10 to do with as you want, that's theft. That is the original sin Adam and Eve committed, stealing from God what was his, not theirs. That puts a new spin on tithing, doesn't it? We may think, well, I can't afford to tithe. You can't afford to steal. Understand? I hope that after we've looked at these eight dumb questions, there's only one left. Chapter 3, verse 13. Let's finish with that. Your words have been arrogant against me, says Adonai, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. It's empty. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Adonai of hosts? In other words, I've just not seen a whole lot of benefit from living this righteous lifestyle. Living according to your commandments, uh, you know what? I could sure use my time doing some other things. And God's answer basically is saying, your lifestyle proclaims that righteousness doesn't matter. Well, I keep Sabbath most of the times, but today I've really got something that I, I really want to do. There's a gun show I want to go to, and it's, all, it's just this, this one Shabbat out of the year. So I'm going to go to the gun show or the whatever car show or the circus or whatever it is. Well, what you're doing by that is you're teaching your kids, keep the Sabbath unless it interferes with something you want to do. Then do what you want. When you do that, when you live like that way, you're telling your children, you're telling the world, eh, God's commandments are just, they're just there where you have nothing better to do. But if it costs you something to keep the Sabbath, if it costs you something to live a righteous lifestyle, eh, not so much. We need to be real careful of the message we send our children and people around us. There are some things in God's word that are negotiable. There are some things that are not. Now, if a life is at risk, you can break the Shabbat. If you have to take care of your animals, get an ox out of the ditch, do it. 
Even if it's Shabbat, God cares about animals. But boy, if it's just entertainment or a business transaction or something that is interfering, you still keep the Shabbat. Does it make sense? You get a glimpse. Malachi gives us a glimpse into the thinking of the people, how complacency had taken over and how they had failed to be the wall. We have to be that wall. We are living stones. We're being built up into a house of God. Houses are made of walls. We need to be the wall. Understand? I promised you last week I'd give some time for questions. And even though we've gone about five minutes over, um, I'm going to open it up for questions and comments at this time. Uh, And not to make you nervous, but people around the world are listening right now. But that's okay. uh, It's just us here. So, Adam, can we get a microphone over to Adam, please? I got to turn back to my page. I didn't know if we were ending early for announcements, so... The, um, well, actually, what, oh, you got what your? Did you find the page? I mean, I've got. I was going to do it. I was really going to make good use of time and make an announcement. Okay, then I'll, I'll so take you, my time. You, you tell me what you want to do. I can wait. Well, whenever. I got to look for the announcement. You're in charge. I mean, <laughs> I'll talk then. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, right, go. over at the end of um, Nehemiah, back in um, chapter 13, verse 30, I believe it is, where it talks about we've just led into the men with you know who've had the wives who are foreigners. Yeah. And when you first read that, at least maybe it's just me, you picture all of these guys and then on one side of the fence, and then you picture all their foreign wives and foreign children being sent away. Um, but I think both first 30 and the book of Ruth kind of shows this pattern for you stop being the foreign people and you become God's people. That the crime itself was the fact that these people retained their foreignness it says i purged from them their foreignness and then it says i assigned duties for the kohanim and we know that the duties for the kohanim and the levites in the past involved teaching people how to discern between good and evil between you know holy and unholy common and profane we see that listed in ezekiel and in the core principles of beth (laughs) takun that the role is to teach the discernment um and that's that very pattern we see in ruth you have a a foreign wife who comes and she attaches herself to israel and becomes part of god's set apart people and that was the crime right Um, Right. yeah it's and also when you look at practically i mean sending a wife away because they did send wives away it's like how could you do that i don't know i don't live back in whatever it was bc i i well life was different then we tend to think life today is normal but life back then was weird well to them their life is normal our lives would be weird so the, but the main thing is, we know that these things are written for our edification. Not that you need to be careful you don't marry a girl who is a descendant of Moab. That's not the thing. But what's the spiritual application? There are certain things God tells us do not attach to that. Some of those things might be shows you watch on TV. Might be the places you go. Might be friendships you form. God says, no, don't do that. You're to be a holy people. There's plenty of room for pleasure and joy and fullness of life within the rules of the Torah. 
But when you go outside of that and you start uniting, becoming one with things that I say don't, now we've got a problem. So we need to ask ourselves, what are the things I'm attached to? What are the things I'm attached to and that fruit is being reproduced in my life? Like being married to a wife and having children. So I guarantee you, if you're investing your life in things God forbids, you're producing kids, you're producing fruit, and it's ugly, and it's distracting, and it's hurting other people. Right? We have to look at what's the application of our own life. But yeah, but to go back, it seems so harsh to tell some wives to go away. But then... What if they do convert? They're no longer a Moabite. They're like Ruth. They become a Jew. That's a different thing. Yeah. Anyone else? Any other comments or questions? Thank you, Adam. Yes, I see Quentin back there. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny that uh, we talk about complacency in this teaching uh, because I, I've been listening to... Uh, a podcast that's been talking about like a lot of discipline and things like that. And, uh, you know, the, the podcaster mainly talks about warfare because that's his background. And I share that background. Um, and it's kind of funny, the parallels you see between warfare and life and faith. Um, and one of the things when I was deployed to combat zones, when you come back to the bigger bases, when, you know, you, you feel a little bit more protected and insulated. There'd be stenciled everywhere. I mean, everywhere. The simple phrase, complacency kills. Hmm. Complacency kills. And yeah. it's so funny when you said that, you know, you, you go, well, who's the wolf's best friend? And I'm thinking, oh, it's, it's got to be like something like time or something like yeah. that. And then complacency. And then instantly I'm like, complacency kills. Yeah. Great. That's I'm great. seeing it again. Yeah. You know, and and you see it everywhere and you have to maintain unmitigated daily discipline in your life. Yeah. Because you can feel yourself slipping and you wonder why and you want you look around you're like what's happened? What's changed? And you're like I haven't been disciplined. I've been yeah. complacent. And it's it's great. just wild to see when you know the way broadly you see it in all things. Yeah. It's it's crazy. It, it, yep. It is the curse on this world, complacency. It is. Thank you, Quentin. Appreciate that. One more. That's it. We're good. Yes, right up here up front. Oh, oh, yeah, I know. Everyone wants to hang on every word, so. (laughs) (laughs) This was a recent scenario you were touching base on, like the Sabbath and keeping it holy. And we have several friends, and we're new to Torah and new to following the Saturday Sabbath. And um, they've needed help or, I mean, things with helping to, you know, fix their house up or whatnot. And (laughs) we want to be a good example, and they know we follow Saturday Sabbath, and they know that we do certain things or don't do certain things. It's not an emergency that we help them, but, like, where is the line there with, like, servitude and, like, being light to them and showing that we want to give and serve? And maybe that it's more of, like, a personal discerning issue, but (laughs) I guess some counsel would be nice, too, just since you touch base on it. Yeah, I I understand your question. Don't you wish God gave us more information about what's violating the Sabbath and what isn't? But keeping the Sabbath is a skill— and he wants you to practice it. You'll make a few mistakes. But if your heart is always his honor, you're going to do fine. 
you're going to do fine. But it's a skill you grow up with, and I'm, we still have a lot to learn. And, uh, but God is gracious, gives us time to grow. We have a, as Gentiles not raised in a Sabbath-keeping home, we've got a, quite a learning curve. God's gracious and patient. But as long as you keep moving, once you become complacent, then you start sliding downhill. Yeah. So that's not the exact answer you wanted, but it's just like encouragement. Just keep doing what you're doing, and you're going to do just fine. All right. Well, we've gone sufficiently over time. Let's uh, close in prayer. I have one announcement for you. Our Father and our King, thank you so much for this amazing chapter in Nehemiah. That even after the people failed and they slipped back, Nehemiah came back again and restored things again. And once again, truth wins. Good is victorious. And you restore your people to health. Father, we know you're going to do the same for us. But I pray, Father, that you would help us not be the people who need you to constantly restore us. But Lord, we would be alert. That we'd be on our toes to always be focusing on being the people you want us to be. Searching and seeking your face. Searching the scriptures and, and just loving you with obedience. So thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. You never change. But we all the time are becoming complacency, complacent and sliding back. Help us, Father, to get victory over this. And this we will do with your help, because we ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen.